Welcome to the latest episode of Wait What? Sportsman's Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast where we take a sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and sometimes serious look at the sports business. And maybe every once in a while we'll get you to say, wait, what? Lord knows we do it amongst ourselves enough. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Paro. David, what's on your mind today? Well, there's a lot on my mind, actually, because there's oh, a lot sorry. of stuff I hope going it's all on. Good. It's, it's, it's all good for the most part. So last week, the the nearly $519,000 deal to buy Tom Brady's final touchdown pass, that deal was voided because he obviously unretired. And I know this is a particularly spiritual season for many here in the United States and around the world, but um, is, it, is it bad that I kind of feel that it would be fun to see Tom Brady get hurt or decide to retire again? And then that story just continues, and then the guy tries to whine and get the get the football back. I, yeah. I feel a little guilty about that, but maybe not as much as I should. Yeah, the short answer is yes, you should feel bad. Um, okay. But I can tell you my wife is very happy that the sale was canceled. Just <laughs> kidding. I wish I had $519,000 <laughs> sitting around, but I wouldn't buy a Tom Brady football. All um, right. Yeah, it'll be – you know, they actually were waiting to see whether or not he would stay – unretired before the sale was canceled and then the ball was actually sold through the auction house in a in a private deal no details on what the price it fetched was it's a, it's an historic ball in its own right now because of the the ridiculousness surrounding it but it doesn't have the same historical significance it would have if it truly was the last touchdown pass he threw well uh, we all do know by the way that uh, between us, uh, you are the go-to memorabilia guy. So I just go off of emotion <laughs> and feeling like I'd, I'd, I would like to add to the silliness around it and and see him somehow not have another touchdown pass. Anyway, so uh, April 15th was Jackie Robinson Day in Major League Baseball. And I have to say, I think it has become one of the truly special parts of major league baseball you know we've talked about about baseball a lot and a lot in a positive way since the lockout uh, but they they really are good stories and i think each year this story becomes better it's now the 75th anniversary of jackie breaking the color barrier uh, 25th anniversary of bud selig retiring uh, the number 42 and of course on jackie robinson day uh, which is was april 15th uh, all players across the league wearing the number 42. And this year they all did it in the Dodger blue. Uh, I just think it's been a, a super special uh, moment in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, David Robinson, his son, uh, spoke eloquently about what Jackie did uh, and what this means in front of all of the current Dodger players and a number of other luminaries. Uh, uh, Jackie's widow was there, um, uh, Rachel Robinson, and uh, met with uh, met with other you know famous Dodger players. Uh, it was just a great moment, and and even in New York, they did a big deal. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. really started this thing when he uh, asked Major League Baseball if he could wear 42 uh, on that day uh, when when Jackie broke the color barrier, uh, and it, and it has obviously evolved into something I think very very special. Yeah, I love the idea that he'll never be forgotten, um, that it will be honored every year. And Rachel Robinson is one of my heroes because she bore so much of what her husband did um, and didn't have sort of the forum that he had many times in which to sort of respond or not respond, as the case may be. And um, yeah, I just I, I love what they do. I, I love the fact that Major League Baseball is is going to allow people who win the Jackie Robinson award to sort of wear that on their sleeve um, going forward. It's just, it's great for the game of baseball. Yeah. You said something that uh, reminded me of a uh, story. I had the great opportunity to sit and chat and have lunch with Peter O'Malley several years ago at uh, historic Dodger town, which is now called Jackie Robinson training center. It was formerly property of the Dodgers. They built the Dodgers built a training facility in Vero beach, Florida. So they didn't have to deal with some of the BS that was going around in terms of traveling to play and hotels and so forth. Uh, and it really was a very forward thinking concept. And, um, Peter was, Peter's a fascinating guy. And of course, after, 
uh, his father who had owned the team, you know, and, and famously or infamously maybe moved them from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. Um, uh, Peter took over the team in the nineties, I believe. I think he became an executive in the seventies, but then, then took, took ownership of the team himself uh, a little later, ended up selling to, uh, um, to, uh, I guess what became News Corp and, and the Murdochs, uh, in a sale that I think just the, the, uh, family, uh, ownership at that time was very, very difficult. Uh, anyway, he is such a believer in the legacy of Jackie Robinson. So as we were sitting here talking to him and I was there for this, football league concept that we were creating, kind of a gaming meets real live football called Your Call Football a few years ago. And he sat and he just asked me, and this was the most important thing to him, was, do you think these players understand what Jackie did and why Jackie's still important? And I and I was able to say yes, because we had made it a part of the uh, discussions to all the players that were there, meeting rooms, meetings were often in the Jackie Robinson room. Uh, and his his legacy is all over the place, along with pictures of other great, famous Dodger players. Since the Dodgers were my literally my first love as a as a sports fan as a kid, because I was born there and I thought I wanted to be Sandy Koufax. Um, it, it was really meaningful to see all these all these images and just Jackie's presence is definitely still there. But I just thought, I mean, Peter O'Malley, uh, I'm, I, I was so impressed with that was all he wanted to know. Um, and I, I was just, uh, it was just a fascinating uh, discussion with, with someone who I think as an owner always tried to do things right. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, uh, Peter O'Malley's father, in addition to breaking the hearts of millions of New Yorkers <laughs> and Brooklynites, added insult to injury by actually trading Jackie Robinson to the dreaded, hated, New York soon to be San Francisco Giants at the end of that 57 season, rather than where the black and orange of the Giants, Jackie Robinson decided to retire. Quick, quick aside here. I was very fortunate um, to, to have dinner with Yogi Berra once and uh, you know, talk about a kid in a candy store. Um, I, I, I said, I, I have to ask you. Um, and before I could even ask the question, he turned to me and he said he was out. He knew I was going to ask about Jackie Robinson trying to steal home, home in the World Series. So before I even got the question out, he, oh, he, man. he said he was out. And that was the end of that discussion. <laughs> so speaking of the Dodgers, um, mm -hmm. the, uh, the current owner of the Dodgers, Todd Bowley, is that how you say his name? I believe so. I could say Antetokounmpo, but I can't say. Bowling, yeah, right. <laughs> you got that thing dialed in now. You don't even need to. You don't even oh. need to pull up your cheat sheet. Oh, that just came out. That just <laughs> rolled off the tongue. But, uh, he, uh, Mr. Bowley, and his group are one of yep. the three remaining bidders for Chelsea, and we should know within the next couple of weeks which group wins out. Yeah, so the looks uh, like, yeah the Ricketts family, uh, the Ricketts group, uh, Cubs owner uh, Tom Ricketts, and and the other. Uh, investors that he pulled together have pulled out saying that they weren't able to get over some of the some of the hurdles so it is down and that should be an, a story we're we're looking at um this week my understanding is is that um uh, the rain folks the investment company that is um working with chelsea is expected to make a recommendation to the to the government um here fairly soon yeah four and a half billion dollars um all cash deal promising not to add meaningful debt to the already debt laden <laughs> meaningful club. debt. Yeah. Well, you know, you always got to spend a little money, right? Four, <laughs> what's the difference between 4.5 and 4. .5? Yeah. All debt's meaningful to me. I know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so it'll be interesting to see. So what about you? What else, uh, what else you got on your mind? I, I, you know, I, I, I chuckled, but I shouldn't have, um, but I did. So like you, I'm not always necessarily PC. I read an article the other day with, uh, you know, April 15th is typically tax day as well as being Jackie Robinson day, but because of the religious holiday it was pushed back to yesterday. But anyway, there was a story last week that these collegiate student athletes who were beneficiaries of the change in the law that allowed them to make money off their NIL. Some of them were surprised that they were going to have to file taxes. Uh, <laughs> to declare the income they made from these NIL deals. And if you recall from our <laughs> our guest several weeks ago, Russ Spielman, he talked about the fact that some of these student athletes 
when they signed a deal, didn't realize that they were then also going to be responsible for creating content. So uh, I don't know if it's an unintended consequence, but certainly these these young men and women are growing up a little bit more quickly than they other might otherwise might have. Um, learning that you know there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uncle Sam wants his piece of the deal. Right. Uh, you know, I think this is indicative of the entire kind of lack of preparation that uh, NIL came down with. And um, I think you and I both agree that its time had come and that there are more benefits and logic to uh, creating a situation where student athletes uh, do have the opportunity to benefit from their uh, name, image and likeness. Uh, but there were so many things that that weren't set can we expect there to be federal legislation on this? I'm not sure. What can the NCAA do to at least help help student athletes through this process and understanding what it all means? Um, we've criticized them before for lack of leadership here, and it might be another front. But there is some there is some common sense here. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take all of that uh, away from uh, from from typical understanding of you you receive money from someone. There is a uh, there is a tax that has to be paid on that, I guess, unless you're um, a, uh, in some cases, a, uh, an ownership group trying to seek tax benefits from uh, either moving to a new state uh, or uh, getting a better deal with where you are. Well, let me say two things. Number one, as Voltaire once said, common sense is not so common. Uh, and number two, uh, TurboTax, H&R Block, if you're out Wait, there. Wait, what? <laughs> Famous philosophers for. <laughs> yes. Uh, but the second thing I want to say is, is TurboTax and H&R Block and other tax prep companies, if you're out there, give us, <laughs> give us a shout. <laughs> Ian McGee will be happy to become your uh, sponsorship agency and uh, endorser and influencer agency to help you get some of these players under contract. It's it's a pretty natural extension. It's a pretty pretty obvious one as well. I you know sometimes these uh, these things that you and I you know often talk about this idea of of creating sponsorship that has meaning and, and relevance and being able to create relevance. Well, there, boom, you got it. It's done. Uh, uh, relevance handed to you. So get the deals done. Um, hey, you want to talk a little USFL? We had a new league launch this past weekend. Who? <laughs> the, the I, did, I, I did watch the stallions well, generals game the, sta the stallions <laughs> general game was the was the launch game and this is the kind of remade usfl uh we talked we talked multiple times about the usfl actually um and there was some you know discussion as to whether or not they would be able to launch fox invested into this league reportedly about 150 million dollars uh, which is why, you know, I think they're getting the attention uh, on Fox. They did. NBC joined in. Uh, so they're actually broadcast across uh, uh, the, the inaugural game was was broadcast across two um, major networks in Fox and NBC. That won't be the case moving forward. Both NBC and Fox are part of this. And the numbers on the first game were pretty solid. They claimed or the, the it was about, I think, a little just under three million viewers. Uh, which, you know, beat a couple of the NBA first round games. But then they went to their second day, which happened to be Easter Sunday. And uh, it looked as though they had a no spectator policy going on <laughs> during those games. Because I couldn't, I mean, no matter how hard they tried, it really looked like they prohibited people from going other than maybe a couple scouts or parents. Yeah, I'd, li I'd like to say that it was uh, empty seat promotion. Come with was... your favorite empty seat, you get in free. <laughs> right. You know, listen, uh, one of our earliest guests, Terry Lefton, the sports uh, marketing columnist for Sports Business Journal, had a comment, and he's had this comment about, you know, people always trying to come up with a, a new football league. Um, in this case, there's obviously pretty solid backing. In the case of the XFL, which is supposed to relaunch next February, which is owned by Dwayne Johnson and Redbird Capital and tied to the NFL, um, I don't think both of these leagues are going to survive when the XFL launches. But you have to be a little impressed with the power of football when you can get that many viewers in April uh, on a holiday weekend. Uh, so I don't want to necessarily write them off, but I don't believe both will survive. I think the XFL is probably a little better positioned 
And we're going to have to obviously follow for more than one weekend uh, as to what the what the trends show. Well, if you believe in that old adage, the third time is a charm, then um, clearly the XFL has an advantage. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember the original XFL and it did gangbuster ratings that first week as well. But by the end of the season, it had dropped something like 70 or 80 percent. Right. And led to the demise of that league after just one year. But well, well, I don't know if I'd go. I think the XFL could have survived. There were all kinds of things going on there. Obviously, they were dealing with some things with the NFL. There's a great 30 for 30 on on what brought that down. And I'll leave the politics out of that. But um, uh, because there were some circumstances surrounding that. But I think that the XFL could have could have survived that time. Um, and, but, it did, but it did not. It, but it well, you correct. It did not. Obviously, absolutely, tons of challenges uh, around being able to uh, make it uh, at another time. But we do know that football. I mean, obviously, you know, the NFL and college football. You could argue is the second most popular sport in this country, and they operate basically at the same time. The question has been: Is can can one survive? My feeling has been, and this is where I agree with with what Terry had said is, is that, is that some sort of link to the NFL is going to be critical. I would also add that something completely different to that um, and not to survive on NFL type of numbers, because it's just not uh, at least in, in our lifetimes. Uh, and I think for several generations after, um, but some sort of, uh, and I don't want to say the I don't want to say this necessarily disparagingly, but some sort of gimmick that gets people more engaged. What we were doing with your call football, where the fans actually call the play, so making it a game versus just the the, the play on the field. And this is what fan control football is trying to do right now. Um, if they could just stop trying to bring back Johnny Manziel, they might have a shot. <laughs> um, but they did bring Terrell Owens back uh, or into the game this year, and he did have a touchdown pass because they launched. Uh, this past week as well. So I think something that has a completely different gimmick that brings gamers in and, and people that aren't the traditional football fans uh, has a shot. Uh, and then the NFL connection with XFL, I think, has some potential uh, uh, meaning for them. But yeah, you are right. They haven't survived. Something has um, uh, shot it down. A part of that is, is just keeping the expectations in front. The last XFL before COVID actually was achieving numbers that they expected, both in terms of attendance and viewership. Mm -hmm. But COVID shut it down and Vince surprised everybody when he walked in one day and said, everybody's fired, it's over. Uh, And then ended up selling to to The Rock for $15 million. You know, he was just, it seemed to me that he was just trying to get some, some, uh, uh, dump some expenses because of trying to operate WWE. That's my view. And one that I can't disagree with you on. When you look back at the USFL, there are literally like over 100 players that went from the USFL to make rosters in the NFL. Some of the more well-known names, Reggie White, Jim Kelly, Steve Young, Sean Landetta, uh, Herschel Walker, right? Your friend, Jeff Knappel. um, Right. uh, But but I agree. There's got to be some sort of connection with the NFL from a promotional standpoint, from a marketing standpoint. From a player development state standpoint, from a you know safety protocol standpoint, right? The league can learn a lot from this other league, from innovation, whether it's in whether it's in analytics or whether it's in uh, in, in in broadcast enhancements. I, I think, but I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think that the the market supports two rival non NFL leagues. I will say this: I'm old enough to remember the World Football League. I, I'm, <laughs> um, which which they were by far the best uniforms in any, in any sport. I went to a couple of the Philadelphia games. I remember when I was really, really young, like really, really young, just reminding everybody that I was really young (laughs) at that time. Anyway, you know, the expectation was that the USFL was going to come out with with some, some decent uniforms. And I found them very average until I saw the new Orleans breakers and Philadelphia star game. And I'm like, Oh, right. Okay. These guys came, these guys came with it couple pretty cool uniforms there i haven't seen all eight of the teams yet um but um uh you know hopefully i'll get a chance to see how that uh, how that is but um the boston breakers to new orleans breakers i guess that is one city that could could say breakers right i'm not sure yeah. it's exactly as as 
good. But and then there's the whole thing about them playing the USFL playing all their games in Birmingham, even though they have city affiliations um, uh, to them. I think it's a wise move from a cost containment standpoint because running a football operation is just absolutely brutal and the travel involved in it from a cost standpoint is just extensive. Yeah, but it makes it much more difficult to develop, you know, Correct. loyal fans. You know, you know, the World Football League, I'm old enough to remember it as well. And there were some big, big names that left the NFL to go play in that league. Right. Guys like uh, Kenny Stabler, um, Jim Kick and uh, Larry Zonka of the uh, Miami Dolphins, the last and only undefeated team in the NFL, Paul, War- Paul Warfield. Um Hall of Fame wide receiver. There were so many players that left the NFL to go to the w, uh, WFL at that time. People really thought it was going to succeed. Yeah. I know the uh, <laughs> the Philly games were played in uh, JFK, the stadium uh, that is famous for ha- hosting for years and years and years, the Army-Navy game. And, of course, that legendary Yes, Peter Frampton concert. Um, with over a hundred thousand people, you do, you do realize we have basically alienated every potential listener. Under Wait, the age of 50. Uh, Frampton, I've had arguments about that concert, though. I've had arguments about who headlined that really? concert. Wait, yeah. what? An argument, right? An argument over who headlined that concert. Hey, young who played people, last? That's hey, your headliner, <laughs> right? Frampton, for those young people listening in our in our global audience. Frampton was an absolute cultural phenomenon. And the Frampton Comes Alive album just was was remarkable. Like this guy went from nobody knowing who he was to being the biggest rock star in the world. But Yes was the headliner on that show. And uh, and rightfully so. I, much, I, I tend to agree, although, although although Frampton actually was, was pretty impressive live performance. I grew up with older brothers that turned me on to Yes at a very early age, so I was kind of into that prog rock stuff. You know, when we when we were young, you know, you would wait for the drum solo or the slow song to to uh, to go out and use the bathroom. If it was a Yes drum solo, you could probably get in your car, go home, use your bathroom at home, drive back, get back to your seat, and oh, it's still was, not. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't even have to be. It solo. didn't even have to be a solo. Their opening number went for like twenty minutes, and it wasn't. Right. A, and it wasn't necessarily like a dead jam. It's just that was the I was song. Gonna, I was going to say they make dead jams look like jingles, right? Thirty second jingles. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I remember. I can't believe we're talking about Yes, but. Yeah, a three-song album was kind of the norm. I'm sure they were, you know, they had to, they did a double album with only four songs. Right. <laughs> oh man. Oh, I'm, I am. Uh, we are. I, we are. You're right about our. Um, we got to check the demos after this because I think they. I think if you actually looked at our metrics right now, that that chart in the in the 55 plus is actually increasing. Yeah. You can see the bar graph going up. Yeah, we're going to single-handedly right. make hashtag okay boomer trend. I think after yeah, this, yeah, I like that. Right. By the way, I'm I'm watching uh, um uh, watching a webinar tomorrow night on the famous Grateful Dead show in 1978 at uh, Cornell's Barton Hall. Well, speaking of the dead, it kind of ties in a little bit with our with our guest today and uh, what is becoming a bit of a holiday here uh, in April 20th. And uh, we're gonna we'll take a break right now and introduce you to our guest. So uh, hang with us. So we have a very special and timely guest today, and our first guest that is currently not directly working within the sports industry. Howard Schachter is a chief communications officer at Merimed, a multi-state cannabis operator that develops, owns, and manages state licensed growing and processing facilities, as well as medical and adult use retail dispensaries. Howard has held executive comms positions on both the agency and client side and has worked on some of the biggest global brands, including McDonald's, where we first worked together. Uh, he also was the lead PR person at SFX Sports and later Clear Channel Entertainment, where we worked together again. He's a truly talented PR leader, Howard Schachter. Welcome. Thank you. Wow. What a uh, intro. Great to see you, David, and uh, thanks for having me. We appreciate you being here on this day before 420, which we will talk about as we move through this. So let's start by having you provide an overview of your company, Merimed, and the different verticals that uh, you market and operate in. Sure. Uh, Happy to. So 
Merrimet is, as you referenced earlier in our industry, referred to as a multi-state operator or an MSO. Um, these are generally larger companies in the industry. And, and for folks that aren't in the industry, the way I sort of compare ourselves is to Apple. Our ecosystem is, you know, we make our own product, right? So Apple makes their own product, sells it in their own store, wholesales it to others as well. We do the same thing. We grow um, and then we process into various products, sell them in our own dispensaries and wholesale them to others. Although as you likely know, it is a ridiculous landscape of regulations. It's a little different in each marketing, advertising is different in each. So, but that's the general uh, model and we're in five states. I'm talking to you outside of Boston, which is our home market where we do that full integration. Uh, we're also in Illinois, Maryland, uh, Delaware, and Nevada. I like the comparison to Apple. Well, look, that's not our brand strategy. We're not the Apple of, of weed. Uh, but the uh, but the model seems to you know help folks visualize what we're talking about. It's really confusing to most people that aren't in the space, and even those of us in it. It's so freaking complex. You know, we're farmers, we're CPG retailers, uh, marketers. Uh, it's it's really a lot to think about and execute, and the cost of that federal legality situation. We have to do all of those vertically in every state. So I sometimes think of it as the United States of uh, Europe, uh, the cannabis world. <laughs> well, you referenced that uh, the, the federal statutes and, and the House recently voted to decriminalize marijuana. Um, it's not likely that that law will pass the Senate anytime soon, but it, it seems that there's going to have to be some sort of federal, you know, laws on a federal level to even out the playing field across the 50 states. Um, you know, how do you think that will, first of all, do you expect it to ultimately pass? And, you know, how will that, uh, how will that impact companies like Marimed and how you go to market? Yeah, it's a great question um, and could take, you know, truly the, the rest of time we have. But um, the, short, the short answer here is that Today, we operate like so many of the highly regulated industries like gambling, um, where state by state rules dictate legality, right? And very different regulations in each of those states. But at this moment, there are a number of, of competing bills and overlapping bills going on in the Beltway um, that all speak to some form of federal reform. And you're right, the, the House passed for, I think, what is the third time? Um, a comprehensive bill called the Moore Act a few weeks ago. And when I talk about comprehensive, what the Moore Act and similar bills like it, and Senator Schumer um, is going to introduce his own bill over the summer, um, these comprehensive bills try to take care of everything from descheduling of marijuana, which is today a Schedule One narcotic in line with heroin um, and others, um, but also social reform and social equity, which is a hot button issue in the industry. How does this growing, booming industry that is going to be darn near the size of beer, 100 billion more or more by the middle of, of this decade, um, how do we take care of those folks that have been negatively impacted by the war of drugs? Well, to take care of all of that is a real political hot potato and you just can't seem to get alignment across both aisles. So comprehensive reform looks like it is many years out. What is much more realistic to happen in the space is a continuation of state by state legality. You know, New Jersey's about to start adult sale, adult rec sales in a couple of days um, on the 21st, I believe yeah. um, New York in within the next year. Um, there are, you know, near 40 states that have some form of, of legalization, whether medical or medical and adult use. Uh, it is much more realistic that that will continue to be the path until some incremental reform happens in DC. And that's gonna come in, in, in a form of something you're gonna be hearing about much more called the States Act, which will bring banking reform to the industry. And that opens up a, a lot of opportunity for, uh, for um, capital market entry, um, but also safety. It's a very much cash intensive business, which 
puts employees and customers at risk. And so where, where both, both sides of the aisle agree is that banking reform needs to happen with some measure of social, but true federal legalization, probably you know many years out. Thank you. And before David asks his next question, David and I have an unwritten rule on this show that um, whenever one of our guests has great question, we want to make sure that uh, the, the person who actually wrote the question gets credit. So David gets the credit on that one. And you well, don't know how, how hard it was for me to say that. I, just, well, I wanted to steal the credit so badly. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take a, I'm going to go even deeper on that. By the way, I, I, I think it would be a great job to like come up with law names, like being the staffer that develops the law names. More Act, by the way, stands for Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, which Ooh. just, yeah. That, wait, so, what? Wait, yeah. wait, that's, that's no, stretching it a little well, bit it, to try to come up with an, an acronym. <laughs> Expungement? Expungement. Well, DC yeah. is How many points do you get for that in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, in Scrabble? Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. For those of you who are watching, David actually looked off into the distance. I think he was trying to mentally calculate how many points you would get for expungement. Well, uh, yeah. Scrabble. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm going to stick with this question for a second, though. If, if it does continue going on the state by state and there's enough critical mass, if you will, and mm -hmm. there's these other banking changes, does that then open the door ultimately from a marketing standpoint to make it freer to market, meaning you're not going to get hit by the feds and therefore ultimately open up where leagues are saying to their teams, yes, accept sponsorship in that area. And as being someone inside the industry, is that something where you'd like to see that go? Yeah, it's a great, that uh, is a great follow-up question, right? That so, one was mine too. My so just... <laughs> um, so here's uh here's the the simplest way to think about this as long as this as this plant this miracle plant honestly um is federally illegal that means that any traditional business that accepts money from the industry outside of a state where it's legal like a league for all practical purposes they're money laundering the minute they accept those dollars and put those money in their bank, and now the bank is 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 money laundering. So, I don't think you're going to see traditional sponsorships, certainly in the Big Four, um, until federal legalization happens. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't what you're you're in a, your second tier of leagues um, doing things interesting, and that happens by state usually, and some leagues just you know going for it. So. What I think, I think the Poconos race last year accepted a CBD sponsorship. Um, Bubba Watson has a CBD sponsorship. Um, the, 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 there's a soccer league, professional soccer league that has a sponsorship. So the first NASCAR race that gets a double mention on the wait, what show is Pocono. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I told you. It's the first one because it, it, it's shaped like an Ikea store layout. <laughs> The first mention was making fun of me for saying that was one of my favorite tracks to no, watch a NASCAR well, race. Yeah, can, well, I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but can you explain why that is? I, I said the same thing. Race. I hate that race. I just, I just love the view up top of the tri-oval. Um, it's relatively easy to get to from my home. Um, there is in... there is no place that Pocono is easy to get to from. No. I, it, it, it's easy to get to within five miles of it, but the last but, five. But but name a name a NASCAR track where it is where fair that last point, five miles fair, is easy fair, to get fair, to. Fair, fair right. point. Right. Fair point. Right. But you're not right. driving. The last mile is at least a highway, and you have some. <laughs> you know where. Well, as our esteemed right. pastor anyway, Steve so I, Loletta once said, you know, you stay at the beautiful Mount Airy Lodge in the heart-shaped right, right, bathtub. Right. So I think federal legalization is going to be the, the, the major tipping point. Um, and I think we'll probably see what we're currently seeing in terms of one-off deals um, until that time. Uh, you know, but there is traditional marketing, little by little, happening more and more. Um, in states where it's legal. My company this past weekend sponsored a Massachusetts-based music festival called Carnival. We had a major presence. They had an on-site consumption area. Um, and so you're, you are seeing that more and more.
But um, look, where I think there's been serious advancement, and I think it's fantastic, is within the athlete area. Um, you know, where where the unions and individual athletes are pushing for reform in drug testing, and that really has been happening um, across the four major sports. And I think that's that's terrific. Um, and then you also have a lot of retired athletes that have gotten involved in the space. Mike Tyson actually owns a cannabis brand that's doing quite well. Um, Al Harrington, the former NBA player, has a thriving brand. A um, bunch of others. Joe Montana is an investor in the space. So I do think on the athlete side, you're seeing you're seeing necessary reform um, in, in the way of, uh, of uh, drug testing. And it's really important because, you know, again, I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but there is so much overwhelming anecdotal evidence about the impact of what this plant can do for, uh, for pain, chronic pain, mental health, et cetera. Yeah, too late for Olympic runner Shikari Richardson, who was yeah. suspended uh, for testing positive for marijuana. But um, right. yeah, I, I, I mean, I imagine we'll see this, you know, being part of the CBA discussions as as uh, labor agreements come up for renewal. hundred percent, hundred percent. Because clearly, you know, I'm, I'm neither admitting nor denying past use, but I hardly see how marijuana can be a performance enhancing drug. For right. any type of performance, right? Well, look, you shouldn't. I, I, candidly, you really shouldn't. Shouldn't be bashful about talking about um, about use as as a medication. It has helped a lot of folks get away from alcohol abuse, uh, opioid abuse. You you you've never heard of anybody ODing from marijuana. You hear you don't hear about people getting into domestic altercations over marijuana. Um, and there's evidence in legal states that have been online for a long time about drug driving incidents coming way down too. So um, it is it is mainstreaming every day. 94% of Americans want legalization, and that includes 65% of Republicans. So we are talking about a mainstream product uh, used the right way. That reminds me of the walk hard, the Dewey Cox story, um, <laughs> seeing Tim Meadows, yes. John C. Riley. A, a highly recommended video for or a movie for our listeners. There. A toward the force, hey, really. Yes. You've been involved in an advertising play for the Super Bowl. And and I wanted to, you know, kind of going along this line, if if we're not going to see full sponsorships, will there be advertising play in big events or in sports programming in general? And also walk us through uh, the history that you have on the, on the Super Bowl. Yeah, well, uh, the Super Bowl in general goes way back to, to the days you and I were working. I think my first experience with the Super Bowl was was getting press around the nothing but net spot of Jordan and, and Bird, still legendary, right? That was my first Super Bowl yeah. I ever uh, did anything professionally with. But I think what you're referencing is um, before I joined Mary Met, I was with another multi-state operator called Acreage Holdings. And um, we really wanted to shine a light on on both the issue of of um, legalization and um, and the benefits that this plan can have on on um, health and wellness, um, and also show the hypocrisy of what's happening in the world of of marketing as it relates to cannabis. So, what we did a couple of years ago is we, we created a uh, an ad, a PSA that we called "The Time Is Now" for all the above. Um, a beautifully produced spot that that anybody listening could could Google or, or YouTube and, and see a 60 second spot. Um, and we went to CBS through me through a traditional media agency um, to try to buy a Super Bowl spot. We were fully prepared to spend five million dollars and get that place. Um, we knew they'd reject it, but we went for it and we produced it and put it in front of them and basically said, look, if 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 you're going to accept beer and you're going to accept opioids, why not legal cannabis, at least in those markets where it's legal? Quick rejection. And, um, and you know, look, um, that type of rejection becomes PR gold for somebody like me. <laughs> and so we, we took that to the masses and it blew up. It blew up beyond anything that I really thought it could. It really became uh, the marketing story of the moment a couple of years ago and, and, and helped shine a light on the hypocrisy of what's going on. Not a lot of change since then, but um, but a good moment for the industry at the time. 
For those of our listeners who anxiously await every one of our new episodes, um, this one will be dropping on April 20th. Um, 420 is uh, is well known within the, the cannabis and the marijuana world. Howard, tell our listeners who aren't familiar with with 420 what the significance is for Maramed, for the marijuana community, and why we should care about it. Yeah, so the history of 420, you'll see all sorts of of um, rumor, myth, uh, some uh, Grateful Dead involvement, whatever. But the true story is that a group of high school kids in San Rafael, California in 1971, every afternoon or most afternoons after school let out, but before their parents got home from work, picked four 4.20 p.m. as the time to meet somewhere nearby the school and get high. Um, and that little story has blossomed into what is what is the Black Friday of the industry. Um, it is a time for celebration of the culture, the history, and to indulge. Um, but there's a real business behind it for companies like mine and brands and, and, and others. If it, it's the biggest week of sales in the industry by a wide margin. Some estimates have it as 50% versus any other day uh, or week in April. Um, and you see traditional marketing go on. We have a slew of you know sales promotion activity going on in our in our dispensaries. Little action. And, and I'll tell you, and I read just this morning, I was trying to read up what are some traditional brands doing. Wingstop, the uh the chicken wing chain. Um, is doing a promotion this week where they have what they're calling a 420 inspired flavor. So they're not using the word cannabis or marijuana or weed. 420 inspired flavor of some herbal smoky flavor. So they're trying to leverage the the uh, trying to leverage the holiday in what is a pretty natural pairing, actually. How is Doritos not doing something around 420? Right. I can't tell you they're not, but you're right. Okay. They should be. They should be. And we, by the way, we have, for those listeners that know the Emac and Bolios brand on the East Coast, um, and I think available in many countries around the, around the, around the world, we're about to launch an uh, infused ice cream brand with, in partnership with them. That is some of the best ice cream you've ever had, infused or otherwise. Like infused with? with marijuana it's not a cbd yeah. product it's no 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 thc oh we're yeah. we're we're strictly in the in the thc business so that will only be available initially in our dispensary in massachusetts and then we'll see how we go and and roll it out from there you won't be seeing that in um you know in in Publix. got it hey so last year speaking of dessert <laughs> mary med made the world's largest pot infused brownie to celebrate national brownie day we did. Uh, how would you compare this to any other great, uh, you know, sports-based PR stunts? And you've been involved with quite a few of them. So tell us about how that all came about, and and kind of make some comparisons to some other other big PR things that you've done. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, in celebration of National Brownie Day, but really it was about launching a new product line that we have called Bubby's Baked, which is uh, soft, chewy brownies, cookies, and 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 such. Um, so that was coming up in December, which is generally a weird time to launch a new product of any kind. Um, so to, to make a mark, we thought, you know, there's an opportunity here to get bigger than just cannabis books. Um, my agency, PR agency, who I should give some props to called Trailblaze focuses on the cannabis space and they're terrific. Um, um, they, they help brainstorm with me the world's largest pot brownie. We did some homework. Guinness has a couple of, of weed related records. They haven't looked at it for a couple of decades and they refuse to now. Um, but, uh, but they, but nothing about edibles at all. And even doing some homework, we found that the largest brownie on record is only about 200 pounds. So we blew that away. 850 pounds, three feet by three feet by two feet. I'm still eating it. <laughs> I'm about that. Um, but anyway, we took a picture of that sucker. It happened to coincide with something called National Brownie Day, because I guess there's a national something day every right. day. So the timing could have not been perfect. And we literally threw that 
threw that image out of our kitchen staff that baked this thing, pushed it out there, and it blew up. I mean, just like that Super Bowl spot, um, we ended up on Saturday Night Live, Jimmy Kimmel, the morning shows, 5 billion impressions, which in PR speak is just absolutely astounding. Um, and uh, so what do I, the, the comparisons I draw to that for marketers, traditional market, you know, how do you reach that viral tipping point, the zeitgeist? Um, and I have been fortunate um, to have a few of those in my career. And most of them carry some, some similar aspects of, of the playbook. Um, a great visual, perfect timing. You have to give the media reason to do something right now. So National Brownie Day became the reason to cover it right then and there. Um, and something of cultural significance. And I think what we didn't even give ourselves credit for going in was just how iconic the idea of the pot brownie is. Most people have some story about a pot brownie as part of their introduction into the space from, you know, from, from many years ago. So all that stuff worked together. Um, what we didn't use this time that generally I, I suggest to, to, to people thinking about how do I create a viral moment is celebrity. You know, it, it's, it seems so PR 101, but that, that more often than not gives you a leg up and an opportunity to get into lifestyle pages. And it's the lifestyle media that you need to get which translates to everything else. Because what most people don't know is those joke writers around the late night shows, they're looking at USA Today to this day um, and others like it for ideas. What, what, it, what are Ken and June and Duluth talking about today? And USA Today and other lifestyle outlets like it um, drive that conversation. So we always think about how do we get into those pages and then hope that that you know, strikes and uh, lights the match. That's, uh, that's great advice. Um, let's go back earlier in your career, you were involved with uh, a, a retail chain known as Stephen Barry's, which I think to this day was one of the greatest retail concepts ever. Unfortunately, oh, you knew it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and you and you were a driving force be, behind the Starbury shoot, right with Stefan Marbury. So um, walk us through about how that came about and what the lasting legacy of something like that is to this day. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, that was I've, I've had I've had a fun career. I've never thought of my career as work if I if I can. Um, and that really that particular moment was a career highlight among many. So Stephen Barry's for those folks that don't remember the chain or never knew it. Uh, when we went under, went bankrupt because of the credit crisis of 2009, up to that point, we were about 300 stores. Um, we made all our own, all our own merchandise, sold in our own stores that were anywhere from five to 30,000 feet, generally in shopping malls around the country. Um, and what we were known for were, were very inexpensive, literally $15 and under everything in the store from sweatshirts to jeans to, to footwear, et cetera. Um, and it's because the leadership of the team really had cracked the code on, on what it meant to, to handle importing laws and all that nonsense. So we made pretty high quality merchandise for cheap price. Um, I was brought on board to figure out a way to get us on the map. And again, going back to that textbook, landed on athletes and celebrities as, as a way to generate press. We did not have the dollars for traditional advertising. And so, um, you know, I was trying to think of who could we partner with um, that would buy into our mission authentically um, and come on board as, as a partner on a, on a new line. And um, going back to my SFX days and my McDonald's days that, that David referenced, I literally called everybody I knew in the sports world from my Rolodex ended up having um, lunch with a couple of my former um, uh, SFX alums who were representing Marbury. And when I was explaining this concept to them, they said, you know, Stefan Marbury could be your guy. Um, he was the point guard for the Knicks at that moment, having his troubles on court and, and you know, and, and all the stuff that people now remember about Steph was just beginning. But what, what most people did not know was, you know, grew up poor, in Coney Island, 
was right at a moment where he he wanted to explode the sneaker game and do something different. He was out of his contract, and we sort of hit on this. Like maybe it's maybe it's Steph. And when he saw what we could do, he was blown away. So the Starberry became his on-court shoe for the Knicks in 2006. It retailed for $15 in our store, and it absolutely blew up. Again, an authentic story. He wanted to show the world that um, that cool doesn't equal price tag. You don't have to kill other kids for shoes that only cost $15. We had lines around every store, and it absolutely blew up and became very easy for us to then sell in a bunch of other endorsements. That was quickly followed by Sarah Jessica Parker with a jeans line, um, Laird Hamilton with a surf and skate line, Venus Williams with an on-court line, which she still wears to this day, called Eleven. Um, it was just, it was a wonderful story. It absolutely exploded. And, uh, and, and you know, look back on that as a career highlight. Well, it really was a, a special moment, and, and I concur with uh, Tim. I, you know, it was a consequential brand, Stephen Berry's. It really was something that had to be paid attention to and, and what could be done to, uh, to create a brand that is so associated with a specific, you know, company around an athlete. Uh, you know, obviously, we were familiar with Jordans and everything, but this was, you know, kind of the anti-Jordan, as you, as you very well described. So thanks for, take, thanks for taking us through that. No, and if you if you look back, if you well, I don't know how much of it is still available online, but boy, Adidas, Nike, all the big guys did everything in their power to squish us like an ant quickly, um, and came out with their messaging that yeah, it could sell for fifteen dollars, but it's a cheap shoe, and then we'd have to counter that by going to the good housekeeping of the world, have them cut an Air Jordan in half in our shoe, and show that they're the same thing. It was. It was a really interesting um, PR battle. They all gave a shot to, to cheaper brands. I, I don't follow the space as closely anymore, so I don't know what the lower end price point sneakers are looking like, if any of athletes have their names on them. But honestly, the way when you talk legacy, Tim, when I think about um, if we impacted how to be thousands of kids to really get their head around this concept, that price tag doesn't equal cool. So it's something I try to impart on my daughter every day, but I think we actually have an impact um, in, uh, in, in lower income markets with that message, at least for a little while. Again, uh, thanks for that. So we're at the time of the show where we like to ask our guests before they leave us a couple questions. And the first one is, where'd you get your start? And we'll take this not so much in the cannabis space, but in the PR space. Where'd your career get started? Where'd you start it? Sure. My first gig was at uh, Golan, the PR firm, national PR firm, Golan. Um, I was the junior member of a new office in New York. Um, and so I learned a ton from some mentors uh, and worked on everything from, from farm-raised catfish to the city of Berlin travel and Sony Electronics during my early days, but I desperately wanted to work in the sports business, made it very clear to management. And when there was an opportunity to move to Chicago and handle sports marketing activation from a PR perspective on the McDonald's business, I jumped at it. And uh, that sort of put me on the on the path that, uh, you know, that took me for the next 20 years. And you got to work on all those amazing programs that, uh that I was involved with, right? So, oh my gosh, <laughs> we have had some fun, haven't we? Yes, we have. And then, uh, and then, secondly, give us—you've shared a lot of great advice, by the way, throughout this, and we appreciate that. But give us one particular piece of advice for uh, for young people looking to break into the business. To break in the business. So I'm gonna—I'm actually gonna give you two answers: one to break in, and uh, and one to you know as folks look for new gigs or new industries. So um, to break in, um, in PR, I tell people to do um, two things. First is a self-evaluation. Um, there's a couple of skills you have to have. You just fundamentally have to have um, to do well in this industry. One is um, curiosity. You have to be curious about things. So the, the litmus test I give people that tell me they want to be PR is I say, look, 
it's Friday morning and a friend of yours asks you to join them at a cocktail party that night, you're not going to know a soul, but come with me. Does that scare you to death? Do you go there sheepishly or do you actually kind of look forward to it and make a point of meeting a couple of different people there and, and having a couple of different conversations? If you're the, if you're the type that doesn't want to go and will stand in a corner, you will not do well in PR. You have to have a burning desire to learn things um, uh, in this industry and do well with it. The other is you just have to be a fantastic communicator and in particular, a writer. You just simply can't get away with terrible writing that bosses of yours are going to be editing out the yes. They don't have the time for it. You will fail. So those are the two skill sets. And then in terms of getting the gig, um, and this applies, like I said earlier, to even looking for a new one, I think in terms of networking, and um, I suggest make a list of those five people. Everybody has five people in their life that will do anything for them um, without anything in return. Ask those people to help you and introduce you to people that you should know to get a job. Those are the first five. You don't owe them anything but knowing them. And then the net, make another list of the other five people. And those people can introduce you to people, but they expect a favor in return and think of something of value you could do for them. It could be as simple as here's an interesting article to I'll work for you for free for a little while. Um, but that, that's the advice I give to folks. Great advice. Howard, thanks. Uh, we appreciate the discussion. We really do. And we hope that uh, that you and Mary Med have a fantastic 420. It was a fun discussion, man. Thanks for coming on with us. I had an absolute ball. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are doing a great job. Um, I do think you should call it a podcast from now on. But, uh, <laughs> wait, wait what? Episode, <laughs> but continued success. It really was a lot of fun and uh, enjoyed meeting you too, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Howard, thank you. David, how did we not think of that? That's great, the podcast. And next week, we're going to disclaim that we did, and, and we're going to bar any... <laughs> you can edit that out if you want. <laughs> edit that out and take credit yourself. Anyway. Thank you, Howard. Well, we did it again. I think that was a really fascinating and fun and a little different discussion with uh, with Howard Schachter from uh, Mary Med. So we're at that time of the show where we like to look ahead a little bit uh, and think about the things we'll be looking for. Tim, what's uh, what do you got your eye on? I'm really looking forward to the the, the continuation of the NBA playoffs. I just think there uh, there's been some exciting games so far. Um, I'm watching that. I just read this morning before we uh, we started uh, recording this that. For the most recent regular season, um, ratings were up 19%. So I, I'm guessing I'm not alone in my interest and excitement to watch uh, the continuation of the playoffs. What about yourself? Well, based on that number, that game one of the Nets Celtic series, that thing could just be absolutely epic. Um, it was it was such a fun game to watch and so so intense. Um, I've got my eye on another media deal. We've talked about Apple quite a bit uh, lately, and I think we'll continue to talk about Apple. It does appear that they are the likely to get NFL Sunday ticket in a deal that is being reported as a, about two point five billion dollars. Uh, it is, you know, Apple made a big play by getting these Friday night MLB games. This takes that to a whole nother level and puts them squarely in if this does come through as being reported or expected uh, in the game in such a major way uh, on par, if not surpassing what uh, what Amazon is doing. Yeah, uh, you know, two point five billion dollars or as Tim Cook likes to put it, uh, petty cash right? right? because they've got what, like sixty three I think something like $65, 63000000000 billion. Yeah, it's nice having cash on hand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So earlier in the show, I, I mentioned that I was going to be joining a webinar that was discussing the famous Grateful Dead show at Barton Hall at uh, Cornell University. I think I may have said it was 1978. Um, and before we get inundated with calls from our deadhead listeners, it was, in fact, May of 1977. So I apologize that well that sounds good listen thank you to my friend and former colleague and frequent collaborator in the past howard schachter for joining us today for a very interesting discussion on a product category that absolutely is going to factor into the sports business in numerous ways 
in the coming years. Mostly, though, thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us. Hell, leave us a review if you're inclined. Until next week, though, I'm DP, he's McGee, and we'll talk soon.